Wild in the City, exploring how a deeper connection with nature helps an urban city thrive. Hi, I'm Jim Newberry. And I'm Janet Wells. We're with Environment Sandy Springs, and we're your neighbors. So research shows that spending time in natural settings is very beneficial for our physical and mental health. Yes. It lowers blood pressure, increases immunity, gives us an enhanced sense of well-being and happiness, and it may even make us laugh more. Yeah. But Jim, how are we all going to do that if some of our neighborhoods don't even have access to woods and green space right outside their doors? Well, that is the magic question. We want to change the mindset about growth in our urban cities at the expense of our natural environment. Oh, yeah. You know, seriously, Jim, I think we are all trying to figure out what it means to be good neighbors to the environment as well as other humans, and to our non-human friends. And who doesn't want that? Well, what about developers? That is the big D in the room. So, what can we do differently? We're going to bring everybody to the table. The developers, the city, and the neighbors. Yes. You know, neighbors should have a more equitable voice at the table. That's right. We're going to look for ways to become more fully engaged in the process of preserving our natural surroundings as we grow. So, how are we going to do that? Well, one of the ways we're going to do this is by talking to the experts and see what they can tell us about this very topic, particularly as it relates to quality of life in our urban cities. Well said, Jim. So, who is our guest today? Our guest today is Bill Rees, Forester and Expert Utility Vegetation Manager. What the hell is that? Exactly. So, Bill, welcome. What does a utility vegetation expert do? So, in the realm of the utility world, typically uh, utilities hire professionals, usually foresters, sometimes arborists, to manage vegetation around power lines, typically, uh, or gas rights away, gas lines that are underground to um, ensure the reliable flow of energy um, to the public and, you know, and to minimize damage during storms. So it involves tree pruning, it involves uh, managing meadows and, and other areas and everything in between. So is that why they call it integrated vegetation management? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it, it's, it, I guess on a on a large scale, you could say it is, but there's it's really more complex than that. And um, when you talk about pruning trees and managing meadows and, and grassy areas and you know herbaceous types of things, it's it's uh, it's integrated in that you're doing different techniques between the mowing and between maybe herbicide use or tree pruning, but they're they're techniques that people really should utilities really should follow that maximize the benefits to the environment while at the same time promotes the reliable flow of electricity and the two are the two are compatible although some people might say otherwise 
how are how are these plots of land under utility easements normally maintained? You, you said something about they do certain things. What do they normally do? The issue is that utilities want to try to maximize the reliable flow of power, gas or electric, to the public, and the public appreciates that. But at the same time, there have been practices over the years that have done that fairly well in a, in a reasonably cost-effective manner, but they, they could have done better from the standpoint of maximizing the ability of a site to promote environmental benefits while at the same time promoting the benefits of reliable power. Well, what, what do you mean what they've been doing over the years? What are their practices over the years? I'll focus on, on rights-of-way, on the, on the wide rights away that maybe get served guests, uh, customers, or um, the large trans electric transmission lines where you typically see with the metal towers and structures. Normally in the past, typically in the past, people will, utilities will mow and, uh, and use herbicides at, at various levels. And what that, the mowing certainly creates a more, I want to say manicured look in an area and uh, herbicides will uh, while they are effective when used properly with the right herbicides, they they can be used in a way that will not enable the appropriate vegetation to exist on a site. And also, if it's not done properly, they you really they can be putting out more herbicides than they really need to, and that gets into cost for the utility. But also, it's an issue with the environment. Oh, sure, it gets in the groundwater, doesn't it, or something. Like that or well, it, it can't. It's just that, yeah, you know, if it's the right herbicides and applied correctly according to label, the labels, it's if they over apply it or if they use the, the inappropriate herbicides, yeah, that has that potential. But really, it gets down to it more so gets down to just using more product than you need and not letting not working with nature to reduce the amount of herbicides and 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 increase create more diversity in, in a given area. More, more plant diversity, more animal diversity. So, Bill, um, when we've talked in the past, you mentioned something about the application could sometimes drive animals deep into the brush where the mowers chop them up. Can you explain that? Yes. Uh, so when you talk about, particularly when you talk about mowing, utilities, uh, if it's an urban area, suburban area, they might mow once, twice, three more times a year. And in other areas, they might they might mow once a year, once every three years, even once every five years. And when they come through and mow, the animals, especially ground nesting animals, will you know little you know, say fawns, little deer that that are um, going through the right of way. When they hear a loud noise, they'll run, and um, they will hide themselves in the brush. And when a mower comes through, uh, you know, sound, it's grizzly, but they'll, they'll come through and the year up and uh, um, you know it's not a, not a result for anyone and it's something you really don't have to do by you know by especially if you do it during the the the, the seasons when the young animals are out there during nesting seasons for for uh, for birds for instance it 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 unnecessarily creates a situation where you're destroying wildlife and you really don't have to do that what what mindset change is needed for all this i mean what would make them not just mow and and kill an animal or birds or what have you? What what change needs maintenance? Uh, I think you mentioned maintenance versus management. 
in this situation and and right maintenance this this is a when you come through and you periodically do the same type of treatment over and over again in case of mowing or uh, repeated broadcast spraying of herbicides that's maintenance you're you're creating a static dynamic or static a static situation that doesn't change things doesn't improve the process it just stays the way it is in most cases especially in, in the case of mowing it just creates a, a fairly sterile situation when it comes to promoting wildlife for flora and fauna native native bees for instance coming into play so there's a management technique called integrated vegetation management or as we call it IVM integrated vegetation management yes and we mentioned it earlier uh, integrated vegetation management is a way to get away from maintenance keeping the status quo and going to management, which is trying to work with the the land to to get to maximize the environmental benefits. In this case, of um, you know for the plants, native plants, native um, uh, native animals on site, and to create a, a really diverse, robust site that that sort of tries to mimic the a more natural ecosystem that, in many cases or most cases, on lots of rights away, does not exist. Mm-hmm. And it's cheaper, right? Or is it? it yes. Yeah, so, so sometimes in the conversion process, when you're converting from mowing to IVM, you might incur initial increased costs. But experience over time has shown, my personal experience and also from others around the country, this experience has shown that the costs are, uh, over time, dropped below typical mowing and and uh, spraying costs, the, the traditional methods of, of maintenance. And when you get into IVM management, you you can uh, you promote if you do it right, you promote native ecosystems over. Hopefully, you can work to get rid of invasives that sort of create a, a sterile environment for our native plants and um, and and animals that that really you know, so you sort of you get back to a more natural environmental web where things work together like they're supposed to. And with, uh, with IBM, the idea is, and I'll tell, give you a typical situation, there's no standard, I mean, every situation may be a little different, but the standard situation is you will come in and you'll prepare a site. So say you, say you mow it on a three-year cycle currently. You, you will let the vegetation regrow to a, maybe for one year, maybe two years, depending on the site, depending on the vegetation. And then you come through and you you do a you you plan this ahead of time, but you come through and you with chemicals, you you get you eliminate the undesirable plants that resprout that are there on site, and you keep the plants that you want to have. Oh, I see. You mean like ivy or kudzu? You spray that, but you leave the other. So it's right. selective. You, it's a selective approach. Selective. Sometimes, if it's say it's a bad infestation of kudzu, you might need to be you, know, you might need to do a broadcast spray. But in most cases, you can come in and do uh, do selective treatments, plant by plant, with backpacks. Not you know, not not a not a big truck with a hose spraying spraying the herbicide mix out. And you go through and you you pick the plants that you don't want. You keep the plants that you do want. And if it's uh, some sites require this initial treatment, maybe only once. Sometimes it might be two, three times in succession over a period of a few years. And ultimately, your goal is 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 to have um, the plants start to fend for themselves and crowd out the unwanted plants. 
And what you're doing with the herbicide use is it's what I call chemically facilitated biological controls that where you're giving the plants that you want to stay there a little leg up by, by helping get rid of the plants that you don't want. Eventually the plants, the desirable plants will start to crowd out the undesirable plants. And over time, the herbicide usage goes down in some cases almost to nothing. And, and the, the, the wanted plants, the desirable plants stay there and help fend, they fend for themselves and, and minimize the intrusion of unwanted invasives, for instance. That sounds great. I was going to say, it sounds like a great way to go. Yeah. So yeah. what's the problem? What, what uh, if, if this is so good, which it would be, because then we get pollinators and, you know, natural and a habitat for animals and, and good water. So what's the problem? And what are your challenges? That's a good question because one of the challenges is that people get used to seeing a certain management type next to their home or next to in their neighborhood. And when something changes, it's, uh, you know, so there's, I think there's a book out about who moved my cheese. You know, people sort of like get uh, anxiety about, about something changing and, and there's some fear that it may not be changing for the better. Nobody likes change, right? People, people tend to be resistant to change, as are corporations, uh, government entities. Uh, you know, change is something that people perceive as being threatening sometimes, I think. So just as an aside here, um, why are easements under utility lines not being used more productively by urban cities? Uh, what is it? You know, Janet mentioned the challenges. Are there solutions? The... And I, I can speak from my experience in in Baltimore, where we had a right of way that uh, transmission right of way going through a densely populated, very urban part of the city. And we proposed trying to do something different, and we even talked about putting a, a formal walking path for people to go through, and stop the mowing. And we mowed this site three to five times a year, and it was a in my view, it was a missed opportunity to have something that people in an area that people frequented to to showcase and to show what what you could do if you use proper management techniques. With ultimately, and there are two there are two schools near this site. Ultimately, with educational opportunities for students that we offered to put signage out and to work with teachers to develop lesson plans about the plans that were coming up. And it's a dynamic thing. You know, every few years, the lesson plans might. Lesson plans might change a little bit, but it's, they're missed opportunities for not only creating beneficial environments and helping native, uh, the native flora and fauna, but also missing an opportunity to help educate people about the natural environment where they have limited exposure to it. So are there ownership hurdles when we're dealing with these uh, adjacent neighborhoods so that might own the property and then the utility just has the easement? The simplest situation is where the utility actually owns the right-of-way. So you're only dealing with one entity in, in this, well, one entity, landowner entity. You still need to deal with the, with the neighboring population in, in the change management process. But when you have a right-of-way that the utility has an easement only, sometimes covering multiple landowners, then it becomes a little more of a challenge to get the buy-in from all the underlying landowners. What's the process with that, Bill? Is it, um, is it, do you have to get a lawyer involved to get everybody to the table? How does that work? 
Yeah, do you go zoning meetings or, you know, city council meetings? How do you do that? Well, the first thing in the case of utilities is to get buy-in with the utility that they're interested in in making a change. That's 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 pre, that's uh, paramount. And once they they've indicated that they're willing, then the next the next uh, step would be and this is a typical situation to contact the surrounding HOAs, the, the homeowner associations, uh, community associations. And also the elected officials to really get the key stakeholders involved, and then and then provide a, you know, information and education to them through uh, could be community meetings, it could be initially through flyers and pamphlets, it could be uh, open houses. I've I've done them all, and uh, there is no best way. It depends on the circumstances, but but the, the important part is is to get buy-in from all the key players, all the key stakeholders. And then, and then get them involved, and then provide provide information to them about what you would like to do, and to get their feedback, and try to answer their questions. And it can be an iterative process. I worked with one community association it, that took uh, about a year and a half to work through this to get the process to to be changed from from mowing to uh, IBM. And ultimately, in this situation, when we had our final community meeting to present this to the broader community it was the first time i never had to be the one on the stage presenting the change the the stakeholders that we worked with in the community presented it for us and they the process worked so well that they actually presented it which is even more powerful than having you know someone like me go out there because it's, it's their peers it's their people the people in there their neighbors and so on who who bought into the process through a peer, you know, through through the educational informational process that we facilitated. Well, I get that. I mean, uh, it seems to me that there are benefits for everybody. Like, what's the benefit, say, to the utility that holds the easement for the transmission lines? I mean, what's the benefit for them? Well, the benefit is, and I won't, I will not hide this fact, the management of a an under IBM versus mowing or broadcast herbicide spraying is a little more complex, requires a little more forethought and planning. And at least initially, and over time, those those issues start to diminish as as do the costs of the work. Um, so that's a that's a change management issue for the utilities to get out of their comfort zone and and, and stop doing something that was very is more simplified. But perhaps more costly, and and certainly not nearly as good for the environment. That's that's the the key thing to to start out with. And and once I say the utility is the first one, you need to convince, maybe not convince fully that it's that it's the way to go, but at least get them to be in a position to that they're willing to listen, and and have their their mind open to to meet with community people and and, and engage with them and to move forward. If we were to bring them best practices that others have done, would that help them have a positive outlook? Certainly, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that needed to be done and, and it's very helpful. Um, I've seen situations where that changes minds fairly quickly and others that you know people dig their heels in and, and just say, no, I've done it this way for the last 30 years and I, it, it works well and I, I, don't, um, you know, I don't wanna change. It's, what's the incentive to change? It's gonna cost me more money and, and, and this is where where the the idea of a pilot program comes into play, that 
you can take a small chunk, not not you know, not bite off a big big piece out of the elephant, but take a small chunk out and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna try this in this little area here, maybe this area over here. There might be two different kinds of of uh, cover types, and we're gonna experiment with with different techniques, and we're gonna try some things, and and yes, yeah, it's gonna be and it's just gonna be a little more expensive because we're doing different things. You know, we're trying different kinds of chemicals or maybe you know different. Uh, timing, the treatments, and so on, but it's not a huge commitment. So people tend to be willing to 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 buy into a you know a pilot where they're not they're not committing themselves to something down the road necessarily right away. You know what, Bill? We're doing exactly that. Um, Environment Sandy Springs. We're getting together to meet uh, under some wires and transmission lines, et cetera, a piece of property. What's it called, Bill, uh, Jim? Well, it's the uh, underneath the easement or the, the utility, but it runs from Roswell Road to Colquitt. It's about 14 acres. Yeah. And so who, are you the one that's gone to the utilities for the people in Baltimore or do we go ourselves? I mean, how do we initiate going to the utility and asking that they change their um, maintenance to management. So, in with my situation, we we bought into it ourselves through a series of we brought in an outside consultant who who had been doing this for a while, who helped us, and we we developed um, you know, worked out pilot programs in a few different areas, and um, turns out fortuitously one of the sites that we ended up developing into a pilot as an outgrowth, outgrowth of this was the Tuxen, um National uh, Wildlife Refuge outside of Washington, D.C. And that ended up being a real home run because uh, ultimately we not only were able to establish IVM on the site, they started doing IVM outside of our right-of-way and then they have a research component um, with the U.S. Geological Survey who were able to come in and also a university were able to come in and do studies on the, the effects of, of our program from what, what we used to do to from baseline studies to what we implemented over a number of years. And that research has really helped you know, foster, help promote IBM, the IBM expansion around other parts of the utility. Uh-huh. That is great. That is great. So what are the advantages of doing a pilot program about restoring southern grasslands and creating wildlife corridors under utility lines. What are the advantages for that? Sure. The advantages are you're not making a huge commitment, number one. Number two, you're, you're, it's still a learning process. So you come in and the pilot, you have an opportunity to do some experimentation on different techniques, different treatments, different chemicals, different, um, you know, different ways to implement a program. And you can see, um, you can see the benefits there without, again, without making a huge commitment. And then it also gives people time to, to get some, get in their comfort zone with this change, because you're not putting something out there all at once where they have to make a major commitment with unknown outcomes. So the pilot puts it into a safe, a safe zone that where you're not making a huge commitment, but you're chipping away at the at the inertia that's been there for a long time. And you're giving people the chance to go through the necessary change management or the change that needs to happen. It's a change management tool in a sense. It helps people go through that change in a, in a very non-threatening or at least a lesser non-threatening way. 
Wow, you sound so experienced at this. How long have you been doing this? I've been a vegetation manager for, well, with utilities, two utilities, one primarily for 30, almost 37 years. And I still do some consulting after that. I've been doing consulting after that. So it's uh, the IBM part, though, came into play probably in 2008 when we finally had that opportunity to to implement it. And I have to say it it really renewed my passion for being a, a being a forester and being able to make a difference environmentally. And, you know, we have a network of people, friends of mine and professional associates who are doing this around the country. So we know collectively we are making an impact. And, and the idea is that hopefully more people will do it with the, with the, um, oh, I forgot how many, 700,000 miles of transmission lines in the country. I might be wrong on that, but there's a significant amount of transmission lines in the country that can make a tremendous difference in being able to help save endangered, rare, threatened species, uh, help monarch populations increase, help our native bee populations, which have been threatened. It's just, for me, it's, it, and others that I've, I've worked with over the years, it's, it's given us a, um, a boost on our passion for helping the environment. That it was something, it's something we could latch on to, make a difference. And the most important thing is it is making a difference where it's implemented. And studies have shown that most notably the, the judicious use of herbicides that has worked. And, and I guess also very importantly, there are no documented ill impacts to the, um, the bees, for instance, and other animals that are, that are out there. And I, I was there for one tour many years ago and I was rewarded with seeing a uh, a mama bear with two cubs walking in the right of way early one morning coming out, and that was um, that was just a bonus to everything else. No kidding, really. That would be great to see that. That's fun to hear. What we're also thinking about on these uh, easements under the utility lines is them becoming wildlife corridors. Uh, because what we witness every day around here are deer that have been hit by cars. And, uh, and there's lots of other animals that can't connect to their habitat because of, uh, you know, all the development. Yeah, would, this, would these be safe corridors, these uh, vegetation sites under utilities? So, yes, they do act as wildlife corridors. They provide uh, opportunities for animals to not only travel safely, they also, the gene exchange where animals can travel farther, for instance, not isolating populations. And, uh, you know, it's benefited, again, monarch butterflies, uh, um, the native bees, the neotropical migrant birds, just a whole host of animals that have, have, have and continue to benefit from this type of management. So, Bill, what, what are the benefits to a city, an urban city? Well, it's, it's a chance, an opportunity to create these robust, diverse environmental areas that they don't have a lot of in many parts of, of many cities. It's an opportunity to expose the citizens and particularly young people, more, more um, uh, impressionistic or impressionable, I should say, young people, to see what nature is about, to learn about nature and, and to give them a, a whole other uh, viewpoint on, on the world that they won't necessarily have. It's an opportunity to open people's minds, you know, not just for the, not just because of environmental benefits, but just to open their minds in general. So there's a huge education aspect to this. There can be, and you know, I mentioned before that one of the issues we were trying to do with Baltimore was to create ed educational opportunities and 
uh, through lesson plans and working with the local schools to make these sites not just beautiful natural sites productive to to the environment but also to incorporate the the, the this uh, these sites into their their science lessons plans and other lesson plans that they have to uh, you know help maybe make their educational experience a little more exciting and, and, and beneficial. I think so too, because once they experience it, that's a lot different than just reading it or hearing it from your teacher. That They can actually walk through these meadows, these grasslands. That, that's uh, wonderful, yeah. And a lot of lower income uh, families don't have the opportunity for that exposure. They don't, and, and this is a, you know, I think it's, while we met resistance in Baltimore City, and I won't go into that, but there were, like I said, there a lot of people don't like change. Uh, <clears throat> I will touch on one of the things people were concerned about, the proliferation of uh, rats and snakes and so on, and, and um, you know, we brought in some, some city, uh, the city horticulturalist, and we brought in a, a uh, well-connected city council man who helped us abuse that of uh, that that notion that helped us move the process forward but you really have to kind of play the game um, based on the circumstances that you're dealt you know what what who do you need to speak with how do you get through obstacles what kind of uh, you know, what elected officials do you need to bring in do you need to bring in the principal or some of the science teachers from the schools to help promote your case you just have to be sort of flexible and fast uh, light on your feet to figure out how to manage some of these issues. And certainly uh, an initiative like this would uh, help a city meet their environmental goals, and it's, it would reduce crime, increase property value, and increase community pride. I, I think the pride thing is a, is, a, is a huge part, and I'm glad you mentioned that because when you do these types of conversions in, a, in any, any place, but the city in particular, and I'll say this also for tree planting in, in urban environments. If you can get the the citizens involved to get ownership in the process, then they will they will help promote it and they'll help protect it. In the case of planting trees along city streets, Baltimore has been very successful in in creating the uh, I think they're called tree stewards, and they and they get neighborhood people who come in and they'll water the trees and they'll. They'll do some minor pruning if if things happen or if, or if there's been some vandalism, they will uh, you know they will report it right away. But they to get the the stakeholder ownership, the neighborhood ownership on these sites, really is is a very important part of the process. So contact neighborhood groups, uh, Boy Scouts, uh, garden clubs, Nature whatever. Ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. And uh, any other thoughts on uh, how we can have local impact uh, in our urban cities here? How do we get the utility in the first place? Maybe with our pilot project here? You mentioned the, the Gameland 33 study at Penn State, the, the oldest one in the country. Uh, for instance, with the utility, to uh, make sure that they're aware of that and point that out to them, that, they, that these, this, that study is going on and talk about study, studies or even the successful implementation from other utilities that have been some in some cases are publications uh, professional journals that have that have covered that and you point out those successes to people but ultimately the and I, and I think a key is selling the elected officials because elected officials can carry a lot of power when it comes to helping recalcitrant utilities move forward 
So if you can get communities to to be favorably inclined to want to do it, and you and then if you do that, then the it's easier to get the elected officials involved because they want you know they see both, and uh, and hopefully some of them are a little more altruistic than that, and they see the benefit to the environment. But ultimately, the more people who are behind it the easier it is to get elected officials involved. And once you get the elected officials involved, it's easier to get the utility involved if they're, if they're dragging their feet. Bill, your experience has been uh, under utility easements, uh, but can you explain some overlooked places where an urban city might reestablish or restore a productive ecosystem? So, okay, we talked about the abandoned... Uh, rail lines and and those are uh, you know, that's 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 a niche area really in a sense there are a lot so on a broader scale a lot of parks and cities have areas that are what i call passively used you know they don't have sports going on there people might walk through them to get from one place in the park to to another but effectively they just mow these areas like it's someone's lawn and those types of areas have opportunity to be turned into productive meadows. And uh, not that you have to do a whole whole scale, full conversion of, a, of an area, but again, you can start putting plots in that eventually, if it works out, they could, you could join those together over time. But those, I think, are overlooked areas that where there's a lot of opportunity within cities to to make a difference. And of course, you get down to what people can do in the yards, like like Doug Ptolemy has talked about, that everyone can make a difference in their own their own uh, sphere of influence. But the within cities, I think the, the biggest um, the biggest opportunity would be in parklands and other areas that are passively used that have an opportunity to become productive meadows. Oh, great. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, because I've seen a lot of just bad looking lawns on parks. So. To kind of close out here, Bill, can you share your thoughts on ways that uh, uh, people can have local impact in in urban cities? What what can people best do? People need to be, you know, from my own experience, we we started in my community. We started a grassroots tree planting campaign, and we sort of build it up incrementally with people who were interested that now, you know, many of us are friends and we do other things together, but we started doing tree planting and we ended up putting together a community program that's ongoing that we have put in fairly significant size street trees. We did over, over 1200 uh, over a period of about 10 years, 10, 11 years that is, that continues to go, but instead of uh, a core group of us, doing leading everything we've now franchised it out to other people where we give them the template sort of the template of success we help them source the plants and we come in and provide technical advice but that way the you know the the opportunities multiply rather than just one core group of us doing things we've now we're starting to expand the opportunities and getting people excited in different parts of our of our uh, community to to start to take to take this on themselves and that's one way to, you know, to organically grow a process like this. And, uh, and ultimately, you get a lot of people who are interested. You get back to getting the elected officials interested. And then you start, you know, you can start snowballing success through, through that type of synergism. Awesome. 
Bill, thank you so much. And uh, one last thought came to me is what role does the media play or outreach play? In other words, this very podcast, what role can that play in our local community? You know, uh, thank you for bringing that up because um, the the media, and I can't believe I, I didn't get into that, but I'm glad you raised the issue. The media is extremely important. And and that come and that's I guess the issue there is it's about exposure, and it's about spreading the good word. So if you if you are doing something, you're organizing a planting effort, you're organizing, you know, you're talking about converting the site to um, you know, to the southern grasslands. The more exposure, the more you can get out to the media, particularly if you can cultivate a few people in different media outlets that take an interest in it and they can develop some expertise themselves and and they can really really be um, huge assets in spreading the word and getting more people involved and and uh, also elected officials follow that as well so it all sort of works beneficially toward the same end awesome yeah bill you've been terrific you really have uh, thank you so much for all the information, the expertise, uh, the advice, and uh, we're going to need it. Uh, we're working on this now uh, little by little, and so we may be calling you for help as to how to get to the utilities and talk with them, et cetera, but really appreciate your input today. Well, thank, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it is a uh, labor of love for me. And I, I, any opportunity to help uh, others implement something like this is certainly is, is, is a wonderful thing, and I'm happy to do it. And as I always used to tell people when I was, uh, when I was more actively working, is that if you have a phone, you have a forester. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a phone, you have a forester. Thank you again. This is good to talk with you, and we appreciate you helping us out. Yes, I feel like you're a neighbor. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Environment Sandy Springs. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode wherever you get your podcast or see it on our website, environment-sandysprings.org. Until Until next time, cheers. cheers!